Julie, one of the, the main questions that uh, that your book addresses is an economic crisis. Um, in fact, uh, Plenitude correctly predicted our current economic crisis. I mean, I believe you were writing in, what, 2008 when you first started penning the book. I wonder if you could describe what you saw and the situation we now find ourselves economically. As I was beginning to write Plenitude, I was concerned that the U.S. was heading into what would be a long-term downturn in the economy, something that was much more severe than anything we'd seen since the Great Depression, something that would have certain um, similarities to the Great Depression. Um, there were structural changes in the economy having to do with the uh, changing position of the U.S. internationally, um, increased competition from other places, the globalization of companies, um, long-term trends in U.S. profitability that um, pre would predict a, a long period of declining profitability going forward um, into the next decade or so, plus the mounting costs of ecological degradation and the way we have not been paying the full cost for what we're doing to the planet. Those things together made me feel that we were going to be in for some rough times. And I think since the book uh, was written, you know, I began writing it in um, 2008. Um, actually, I began writing it in 2007. Um, I think, you know, my, my expectations have been more or less borne out. Of course, with a big stimulus, there's going to be some level of economic recovery, but it's very weak, and the labor market is barely recovering at all, which was the key point in some ways about um, sort of economic expectations that I wanted to make in Plenitude. That was the idea that for the average person, the labor market conditions were going to be very different than they had been in the previous couple of decades. If we don't do something, Julie, um, how do you see us moving forward? I mean, uh, without a vision of something like you, uh, you, you make in Plenitude, what kind of forecast do you see as far as uh, jobs returning, uh, jobs being generated in the next couple of years? I, I think it's very unlikely that we would be able to generate the numbers of jobs at current working hours, and we'll, we'll get to that, I hope, uh, the numbers of jobs that would be necessary to put people back to work and to absorb all the new entrants into the labor force. Of course, every year we have uh, high school and college graduates coming in who need jobs, and we've got that that's a steady flow. Um, I think something like uh, that that's we've got about three million people a year coming into the labor force um, new entrants. So my um, expectation is that we are going to continue with quite high unemployment and underemployment going forward for many years. Um, unless we make some fundamental changes in what we're doing. But if we stick with, you know, what I call in the book of the business-as-usual economy, um, I think that's going to be the likely outcome. We could go into some more detail on that if you want to. Well, you, I, I'd like to uh, also touch on something you, you mentioned just a second ago before we get too far away. You, you said that, obviously, the, the business-as-usual economy is not only failing, but it's inflicting 
uh, great damage on the planet at the same time. Um, while the BP oil disaster is just our most recent uh, reminder, what environmental trends are you seeing, along with those economic ones, that scare you the most? Well, uh, the most serious and urgent threat, of course, is climate change and the crisis which our economic system is creating in the climate system. Uh, every dollar of economic output, every dollar of growth generates a certain amount of carbon emissions in this country and globally. And so we, we are um, past a point of safe accumulations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. That would probably be about 350 parts per million um, and we are closing in on 400 now. So that's number one. If we continue with what we're doing, we are risking catastrophic climatic changes. I say risking. I mean, not all scientists agree that we, we um, well, they all agree, I think, if we continue on this path for long enough and the concentrations get high enough, yes, um, sort of exactly when the, the sort of, the uh, nonlinear effects, which, you know, get the magnifying feedback loops and so forth, when those start to kick in is something that's being studied now. But I think the probably the best way to phrase this would be to say that we are now in a situation where we are risking uh, climate effects, which are absolutely catastrophic in terms of um, the ability to maintain the earth as a as a um, habitable climatic zone for us. So large parts of the earth may not be habitable unless we um, do something about this problem. So that's number one. Um, in the book, I also talk about a variety of other ominous trends in um, the ecological health of the planet, biodiversity being typically the the uh, problem that is thought about next, of course, we have water shortages, the um, uh, issues around uh, ecosystem functioning generally. So whether we're talking about we've got ocean ecosystems, for example, which are in terrible jeopardy, the, the spill has highlighted some of this, but we've got a combination of things going on in the oceans, toxic pollutions, overfishing, the destruction of ecosystem, uh, ocean ecosystems, climate change leading to chemical processes in the ocean, which are creating dead zones. Um, I don't want to get into all the, you know, the scientific words for this, and I do talk about all these things in the book. Um, so that those are, those are some of the other issues. Um, then we can intersect them with the human um, impacts of these things. So, for example, if we have growing desertification and water shortages, we have growing famines and poverty and forced migrations. Climate change itself, of course, is going to create very large migrations of people. We've got something like 40% of the world's population lives in low-lying areas, coastal kinds of areas, or close to them. And we're going to have major sea level rise as a result of warming of the ocean. So those are the kinds of potentially catastrophic impacts that could occur should we not address the ecological impacts we're having today. Julie, you do a wonderful job of articulating these these trends, these very catastrophic potential. What 
why are we so why was so much at stake are we uh, so reluctant for for major change why why don't have we not responded quicker what's what's wrong with us well there are two big categories of answers that are out there right now to this question one of them is that it's something in our human nature that makes it hard for us to understand global processes or makes us likely to procrastinate and fail to address them and so forth. So there's a kind of genetic or behavioral explanation. I don't actually think that's what's going on. Um, if you look at public opinion, uh, most people in this country think we global uh, climate change and global warming is a significant problem that the government should address. Uh, they believe very strongly in a sort of clean energy path, so they want to see an energy transition. Around the world, people are, by and large, feeling that uh, governments and business and households need to address these problems. I think what we're facing in the United States, which has been one of the places where there has been least ability to address climate change, is organized blocks of power. Uh, just today, I read about the new 527 um, corporate group being formed by the coal industry to try and uh, defeat people in Congress who might pass climate legislation. Uh, of course, the energy industries, you know, perhaps with finance, the most powerful industries in this country have a pretty much a stranglehold on Congress. And so I think the politics of it, or what we might call the political economy of it, are the most important thing. Uh, California has passed a good climate change bill, and I saw again today uh, a poll indicating there's uh, support among the population for for this legislation. Um, and you see the same thing in other countries. Uh, England passed a climate bill with binding targets, which are pretty good. I mean, not yet what we need, but at the time it was passed, they were in line with uh, consensus science, uh, relatively speaking. And um, they are the same genetic, you know, uh, animals that we are. So the British can see it. The Germans can see it. People on the island nations can see it. Plenty of places understand it. The, the places where there is more difficulty passing climate legislation, for example, are the places where the political system is more dominated by energy, fossil fuel energy interests. You write, uh, Julie, that the essential principles of uh, plenitude are to, to work and spend less, uh, to create and connect more. Could you elaborate on this new paradigm, how you see the new paradigm taking shape? Yes. Um, the, there are two parts to the, let, let me start with the, the uh, work and spend less um, and part of this. Um, if you have a situation in which the amount of economic growth that you want to generate is constrained for some reason. So in our case, right now, when the economy grows bigger, it pollutes more. That undermines our natural capital. So on, you're getting, on the one hand, current consumption and certain kinds of investment, but on the other hand, you're, you're undermining your support systems of life. So it's not, a good, it's not a good way to grow. We need to shift to a different production paradigm and consumption paradigm before we can 
keep expanding the size of the economy uh, in a safe way. So one of the premises of plenitude is to say, well, how could we provide a lot of well-being for people that wouldn't be so um, ecologically degrading? How can we meet climate targets at the same time that we create well-being for people? The business-as-usual economy says the only way to create well-being is to have people at these long-hour sort of full-time jobs, maximal economic growth, and the well-being is created by maximizing the rate of economic growth, which means maximizing the size of the economy, you know, holding a few, more or less. That's that's the message. Um, two points about that. One is that's not ecologically feasible at the moment. And number two, it's also not working on the labor market side for reasons we talked about earlier. That is, the economy seems to be unable to generate just through its regular mechanisms enough jobs for all the people who need and want them. So there is a way forward that actually addresses both of those issues at the same time, and that is to say, well, what if the average job were fewer hours so that instead of just creating more output, we give people more time, we therefore have lower hours per job, which means for any given amount of work, more people could be employed. And so it's it's ecologically light. It's a fair solution because it it it'll make a huge dent in unemployment and actually could get you to full employment if you did it carefully and, and sort of thoroughly enough. And then you have to ask the question, well, would people be worse off with this if they were working fewer hours? Um, or maybe, uh, or, you know, maybe it's about going forward and using productivity growth to reduce hours of work. We could talk sort of how you transition to it. But ultimately what it means is that the economy would be producing, the formal economy would be producing less than it could in theory because maybe people will be working six hours a day instead of eight or nine hours a day, or maybe they're working five hours a day. And so they're going to get less cash money in, or their cash money won't go up over time, depending on whether you cut back from where you are or you just get onto a different trajectory and say, okay, maybe we're going to stabilize at this size of economy, but just not get much bigger. Um, what do people gain from that? They gain time. So suddenly uh, people have very different daily lives. They have the possibility to do many other things because they're not time-stressed, as many Americans are today. Um, and this, the, the create and connect part of plenitude is about that. It's about saying, well, I could spend some of my time that I no longer need to, to spend earning at my regular job, um, I could start a new small business. I could begin to make things for myself. Uh, we have an explosion of vegetable gardening and home brewing. We have a whole range of DIY going on. I can be creative. I can, you know, I have a hobby. I can turn it into a small business. I can get involved in a lot of the really interesting new high-tech small-scale manufacturing that's going on, something I talk about in my book. Um, I can spend more time connecting with other people in my community, building up my um, economic, my human, uh, I can spend more time 
connecting with other people in my community, building what we call social capital. So that's wealth that resides in my ties with other people. Um, and from the social science literature, we know that people who live lives of time affluence, high social capital, creativity, um, this way of life also gives you a lot more freedom and autonomy because you control your own time for so much more of it. Those are people who have very high quality of life, high levels of life satisfaction. They are physically and mentally healthier and so forth. So from what we know about what creates well-being for people, this is actually a, a really good model because long hours of work and what I've called the work and spend cycle – um, certainly debt-fueled consumption, and lifestyles which are focused primarily on material goods and acquisition of stuff and so forth turn out not to be all that great in promoting well-being. Um, we have a lot of cultural messages that tell people they will be, but um, the research would lead us you know, to another direction. So plenitude is about a lifestyle that maximizes the things that actually provide a lot of well-being to people um, is is much less heavy on the things which turn out not to, to do so much, all of which I should say is true for people who are above a poverty line. You know, above people have to have basic needs met uh, for shelter, food, clothing, health care, etc. Once your basic needs are met, the impact of additional income is a lot less than on well-being is a lot less than people expect that it will be. Um, so that's that's um, that's the uh, the premise to it. There's um the um, yeah I think the 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 freedom, creativity, autonomy is also really key here. We live in a high tech society in which we could use the incredible fruits of productivity, the amazing things that we have invented and discovered and have at our disposal now to make people's lives much, much better than they are. I mean, there are many ways in which our system, it's giving us a lot of goodies, but it's failing us in, in some of these other very basic ways. You, uh, you touched on this just a moment ago, Julie, and it's the, the notion that plenitude is about re, reconstructing locally. Um, what are some of the initial steps that, that we can take? How do we make that transition? I mean, the vision sounds wonderful. How do we get begin to get from here to there? In, in the book, I emphasize local initiatives which create economic interdependence. And I think that's really key because we have forgotten that the economy is not just the money part of the economy and that the, the transfers of labor and goods in kind and services that people can do for each other on a local scale are every bit as economic as what we buy at Walmart or what we put into the bank or, you know, that sort of thing. So in the book, I talk about the ways in which we can become more economically interdependent through things like time banks where people, um, offer services to others in the local community in return for getting services back on a, that's on an hour per hour equal basis. Um, and these things have sprung up particularly since the recession began because people have more time and less cash 
And that's that's a big theme of plenitude is in a time, an economic time like this, when time is plentiful for many people and cash is not, you will begin to see people gravitating towards these kinds of initiatives. We do see that, at least anecdotally, we know that's happening. Um, and that's economically smart for people. So plenitude is in part a model which says, you know, what's a smart way to live in a, in a situation as we are at the current moment? So time banks is, is one of these things. Um, sharing sites, um, websites in which people put out things that they have available to be shared with others in the community, whether it's cars or lawnmowers or specialized equipment, um, it allows people to buy fewer of these things um, in a, in a, on a street or in a, in a small community. Um, people can save their money by using um, neighbors' uh, uh, possessions and for things that aren't used all the time, of course. Um, FreeCycle, an example of a site in which people uh, list things that they no longer want and in which they can get things from others. And free cyclers consider themselves as part of a community. Um, so the net is a really important uh, dimension of all of this because it's made these kinds of local, econo local economies, if we want to call them that, much more efficient. It used to be you'd have to call around to find out, well, does anyone have a spare um, motor. Does anyone have a spare printer of this type? Or, you know, I need this type of pickup truck. And um, now we have a super efficient tool, which allows us to get this information at an instant. It's also what allows car sharing and ride sharing and couch surfing and a whole host of local uh bartering and sharing and trading sites, which are outside the formal economy, which can enhance people's well-being quite a bit, which we can now do in very efficient ways. So those are some of the things that we can start with. People already are doing all of these things. We're, we're both educators, Julie, and, and some argue that schools have been set up uh, to support an outdated business model. Um, how should, in your mind, higher education change to support the world our students are now entering? Um, that's a great question. One of the things I emphasize in the book is that many of the new technologies, uh, clean sort of production, low, low ecological impact production methods that are coming into vogue now or, or are coming to be that are being learned and transmitted now are being uh, that I'm sorry many of the new low impact production technologies and ways of doing things that are becoming much more popular now um, and necessary are being transmitted through non-traditional means outside of universities, um, through workshops, through face-to-face um, -face teaching, through online teaching, through videos, and so forth. Um, it's a kind of, they're often apprenticeship models. And here I'm talking about things like permaculture, which is a high productivity, low labor, clean way of producing food, which tries to mimic nature's own um, methods, a kind of biomimicry 
um, method or the small scale manufacturing technologies that I talk about, the fabrication labs, which are being taught outside of um, institutionalized schooling. Um, so whether we're talking about agriculture or small scale manufacturing construction, there's a whole boom in alternative low eco impact construction, do it yourself construction in homes and structures that is exploding around the country. Um, each method native to the area that it's in in order to be ecologically sensitive. So we have straw bale in the southwest and adobe. We have wood construction in the northeast. We have stone construction in the northwest. Those kinds of differences. Um, all of those things are being learned outside universities. So I guess the first thing I'd say is universities need to get back into the business of a more integrated model, mental and manual. Uh, They've pretty much divested themselves of the manual side of things, um, with the exception of some ag. And, of course, the University of Iowa has a lot of agricultural uh, instruction. But the um, we need a more integrated model. And one of the, the features of a lot of these new, low eco impact technologies that have emerged is that they are very knowledge intensive, even though they are manual in the sense that they're people are planting food or they're building houses or they're making things with actual material. So in that sense, they're hand labor, um, but they're, they use a lot of knowledge and that, that into that reintegration of mental and manual, which is characteristic of the pre mass production era is the way I think we need to go. I think it's we're moving, we're beginning to move in that direction, and that would be a major change for universities. This is the same question, just a slightly different uh, angle to it, and that would be from a student's perspective. What advice would you give a new college student regarding how they should prepare for the professional and personal success, especially in this kind of new world, the paradigm that you're talking about? How should they use those four years um, from a, from a course selection as someone at your institution or mine, what would you recommend to the student? Well, I would certainly recommend learning to do something well. And that could be learning to write well and communicate. It could be learning a professional skill. Um, I've been talking about mental versus manual. It could be uh, very much a, a sort of non-manual um, you know, most of what people are learning in universities are not manual skills. So I'm not saying go to university and learn how to work with your hands. But I am saying that I think uh, it is smart for people to be more diversified in what they learn. And that is a big theme of my book. It says the specialization that has dominated over the last decades is going to be less economically savvy. And my advice to young people is if you're learning a skill which is primarily head, whether it's, you know, dealing with papers or, you know, writing or medicine, law, etc., also learn how to do something which connects with basic survival. So either learn a little bit on the agriculture side learn how to make things, learn how to cook, learn something that you have that you can then trade with other people that will be valuable to people. 
Uh, one thing you might think of, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but, but the chances that it will happen are, are rising. Imagine you're in a situation where there was a natural disaster or where the economy collapsed, where the centralized systems weren't working, money wasn't valuable. Do you have something that other people need? Can you share that? Because if you do, then you, you, you will be able to barter, trade, exchange for, for the other things that you need from, from those people. So think about basic survival. I think as a society, we've gotten too far away from the, the basics of what we need to reproduce ourselves. Um, too many people who only know how to push papers around. So I think that's the uh, that's the kind of advice I would give. Thank you. I, I you touched on consumerism and materialism, things that I know that you have cared about um, and worked to, uh, to help enlighten people on for many years. Uh, I think it was UCLA's uh, 2009 the CIRP freshman survey that they take on students every year incoming. Uh, had been well off financially as a top goal in students, something like 78%, uh, the highest the survey has seen since 1966. Um, lots of factors go into that, I'm sure. I mean, students have incredible debt that they carry or know they'll carry through college, and I'm sure that weighs on them. But, um, but do you have any insight from the work you've done with cons- uh, looking at consumerism and how to break its hold on our lives? I think that one of the most important things people can do is to begin to create things outside of the normative, the normal, that people can begin to create things outside of the standard consumer market as a way of um, seeing it in a, you know, and being able to have a better perspective on it, not necessarily getting so caught up in it in ways that they can't see it. I, I want to be clear. I, I, I am a crit- critic of consumer culture. I also am keenly aware of its benefits um, and how much products and marketed experiences, consumer experiences can add to people's well-being. But when you look at step back and see the bigger picture, I think we're overestimating that relative to other things. So, for example, um, I think one of the messages I would give is that getting involved in non-consumer activities, uh, these, these do-it-yourself kinds of activities that I've talked about, or some of these local economic um, interactions, um, I think those are some of the best things that people can do. They tend to move people away from the mall um, and I think a lot of us have, I think we all have, uh, a lot of creativity in ourselves. I don't think our society necessarily fosters it. Much of it comes out in the consumer culture. That's the main outlet that we have for it. So we can be very creative in, in how we consume. Um, I think that if we get more creative in what we produce um, and more creative in our connections with other people, more creative in making music or um other kinds of uh, arts and culture, uh, we will tend to be uh, a little bit less maybe obsessed with them all. One of the, I think, really important trends 
in recent years, and you see it primarily among youth, is how active they have been in creating culture uh, digitally. So whether we're talking about music, uh, writing, uh, videos, movies, I mean, just an amazing array of content. In fact, you know, one of the big trends in advertising now is is consumer-generated content. The advertisers themselves are seeding way to the consumers. And in a way, my book is saying, let's get that offline, too. It's that kind of joy and satisfaction and creativity uh, that we're seeing online is, is every bit as available to us offline. That's a great answer, Julie. I I, I know we've talked a lot about trends, and one a demographic trend that is definitely occurring, demographic change, if you will, is that we will soon have the largest elderly population in human history uh, as, the, as our country ages. What does the plenitude message hold for this group? Well, in some ways, these are folks who are moving into more of a plenitude model. They tend to work less. Um, they do do more for themselves in some ways. Obviously, as they begin to become infirm, they can do less for themselves, but people take up hobbies and so forth in their retirements often or if they're working part-time. Um, they also tend to, they don't accumulate stuff as much. Um, so I think it is a, it's, it's a relevant message for them, although... I would say in some ways, I think it will be more powerful for younger people because it's really about um, it's about choices you can make at any time in your life cycle. But I think people will get sort of most benefit and long term benefit if they make some of these choices early on, um, if they don't get caught up in work and spend lifestyles and high debt, and they don't lock themselves into ways of living that minimize their freedom and, and autonomy. So um, I'm especially hopeful about younger generation, about new college graduates, about people in their 20s and 30s who have been very excited about this message, because these are many of the things that they've been thinking themselves, I think, about um, new ways to live. I think they understand that the old way of living, the business as usual, uh, the status quo is not coming back. One of the obstacles you've written, Julie, uh, to moving to this new vision is the lack of confidence that there is another way. Um, what will it take uh, to reach especially those young people and create a tipping point. Uh, and how long do you, I mean, do you see any inklings that that's happening? Um, I see it happening as a, a, a social kind of networking process in which the um, prevalence of these kinds of lifestyles increases. The reason I think it's going to increase is because I think the basic economics that we're, that people are facing um direct us in, in this way, and I, I mentioned that. Uh, this is a, a lifestyle that makes, uh, this is a lifestyle that we will see more of in an, a time when people have uh, more time and less cash, less surplus cash. So I think as people do it, um, that then generates more interest in it, and it, it's kind of spread. So I do see a sort of uh, a gradual diffusion process through it and eventually reach a tipping point. What are the things that could accelerate the process? Um, 
certainly the sustainability movement hasn't been important there because it 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 has a there's a strong impetus from people who under learn about what's happening there's a strong motivation of people who learn about what's happening to the planet and want to do something about it and they want to reduce their footprint and this is the um it's it's a sensible way to reduce your footprint because it's a it's a high satisfaction way of living. I mean, working long hours and earning a lot of money and then deciding not to spend it because you don't want to have eco impact is not typically a, a you know the kind of way people want to live. They I think generally would prefer to take their time. Uh, if, if you don't want to spend the money because you don't want to have eco impact, then get your time back and enjoy enjoy your life. Create. Um, make friends, connect with people. Um, so uh, I think those that the intersection of the economic crisis and the sustainability movement, I see the two main drivers of this trend. I have just one final question for you, and it's a question I've asked everyone I've spoken to. Uh, we're creating a, a set of uh, Ten Commandments, if you will, for the course, and the list uh, will articulate the unique approach to higher education I'm hoping to foster with these students. If you were to add one commandment for today's university classroom, what would it be, Julie? Be in touch with what's happening to the earth. Okay, that's a good one. Thank you so much, Julie, for your time, and I, I appreciate all your work and what you contribute. Thank you so much, Dave. We'll be in touch. It was really enjoyable to talk to you, and um, I look forward to listening to the interview. Take care.